This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Mesh Seibel, the author of The Estrogen Fix, the breakthrough guide to being healthy, energized, and hormonally balanced. With groundbreaking research and an exciting new theory that will change the way women look at hormone replacement therapy for years of substantially improved health, happiness, and quality of life, The Estrogen Fix is a must-have book for every woman over 40. Dr. Mesh Seibel, one of the leading doctors in women's health and menopause, proves that every woman has an ideal time to more safely begin estrogen replacement. When administered at this time, referred to as the estrogen window, estrogen can lower your risk for breast cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, osteoporosis, and more while minimizing your symptoms, offering hope expertise, and concrete solutions to a rectifiable problem, The Estrogen Fix is the definitive book on hormonal health for women. If estrogen has you confused or worried, if you are toughing it out because it seems too complicated to figure out, if your doctors are reluctant to treat you and your symptoms are making your life a challenge, Dr. Seibel's work is for you. Dr. Mesh Seibel is a leading expert who helps women in menopause feel better so they can have more control over their life, their work, and their relationships. He is a member of the Harvard Medical Faculty, author of the best-selling book, The Estrogen Fix, and editor of the number one digital magazine for midlife women, HotYearsMag.com. Before transitioning his career to focus on menopause, Dr. Mesh was a leading expert in infertility, performed some of the first in vitro fertilization successes in the United States. Dr. Mesh has published over 200 scientific articles and 17 books for both professionals and consumers, and has received multiple national awards for patient education, research and innovation, and for music. He is board certified in gynecology and reproductive medicine and a NAMS certified menopause practitioner. In addition to seeing patients in his office, Dr. Mesh is a sought-after speaker, consultant, and menopause coach at menopausecoaching.com. Here is the interview with Dr. Mesh Seibel. In your own words, who is Dr. Mesh Seibel? Well, I'm a women's health and menopause expert, and I help menopausal women who are struggling with symptoms to feel better so they can feel better and do better in their 
work and their life and also in their relationships. That sounds wonderful to me. I have a lot of questions for you when we are talking about your work. But before that, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off record. The first question is, what does it mean to be a human? Well, that's an interesting question. I would say that being a human yeah. is to have a capacity for love, to have a capacity for caring, uh, to have a capacity for empathy, and to have a capacity for sharing. I would think those are some of the main qualities in terms of being a human, and there are certain, certainly human qualities that I would put value on. Yeah, sounds wonderful to me. What is your own definition for well-being? Well, it, when we were talking earlier, you were talking about having things uh, perfect, uh, not, not perfect, but good enough. But well-being, well-being, I think, is, is really a state in which you develop habits for a lifetime that allow you to sustain the healthiest possible lifestyle, the best quality of life possible, uh, so that you can live longer and it doesn't seem like longer. And I think those well-being is really the attributes that uh, people should focus on so that they can optimize the quality of their time on Earth. What is life to you, Dr. Mesh? Well, I heard it, but I'm not sure what is life. I mean, life means a lot of different things. Uh, uh, life can be uh, the life you lead. Life can be uh, the difference between something that's alive and something that isn't alive. Life can be the existence in which you are uh, habit in, uh, inhabit while you're on earth, life means a lot of uh, different things. So I'm not sure which one of those you refer to. I'm curious to know the ideas people have about life, or what life is, what does it mean to be here alive in a human body? Oh, that's a, that's a different, uh, that's a more <laughs> specific question. Uh, you know, being a, being alive in a human body is is really having the capacity of body, mind, and spirit. It's the emotional self, the spiritual self, and the physical self, and all the things that that uh, encompasses. So it's it's many things. Do you think that life has a purpose, a grand purpose for all of us? I think that life has the capacity to have a purpose, but I think that not every person has a purpose. And by that, I mean they don't find the thing that makes them get up in the morning or haven't identified the why that gets them going. I do think that once people have that purpose, then the things they're capable of, the things they accomplish, the things they enjoy, the things that they bring their energy to suddenly becomes enhanced and that they are uh, more engaged in life in general 
and more engaged in society in general and more engaged in the world in general. Yeah, yeah. What do you think is the purpose of your life? My purpose? Um, I think it's uh, multiple things. I think professionally it's to uh, educate as many women as I can so that they have the best quality of life that they are capable of having. Uh, I think as a uh, husband, it's to be a good partner and to be uh, caring, sharing, and participating in the things that uh, we enjoy and bring uh, happiness and value to our relationship and our family. Um, I think as a uh, person in society is to try and offer whatever insights, wisdom, and efforts I can to make the world a better place. That sounds wonderful to me. What is the meaning of freedom to you? What does it mean to be free? Uh, free means that you have the ability to do those things that are most essential to you. Uh, I think that's its strictest definition. But freedom means that you have enough money to have a house and the clothes you need and the food that you need to eat. It means that you have uh, the relationships that you desire, either in a partner or in, uh, in a family or whatever those relationships are as you define them. And uh, freedom is to have the physical capacity to enjoy those things that I just mentioned. And I think, I think those are the things that create freedom. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? Love and acceptance. Mm. Yeah, love and acceptance. What is love to you? Well, if you ask my mother what is uh, love, <laughs> she would say it's an itching sensation in the heart that you can't scratch. But love is when you value someone or something enough to push yourself forward when you don't feel like going forward to uh, be willing to make sacrifices for and uh, to look for opportunities to share and engage in the world. It's, I don't think it's all about the passion that people talk about. Certainly moments of that and some of that is important, but that's one of the corner pieces of the puzzle of life. And I think uh, love are the, are the puzzle of love. And I think that it, it, it encompasses many things. What is your understanding of inner peace? Well, inner peace, I would say, is contentment with where you are and who you are and how you are. And... Um, satisfied with what you have, but always searching to see if there is other things that you can layer on, like the layers of an onion or um, other things that, um, that can uh, add to your, you know, to your, to your total self. And, and I think uh, it's somewhat the way I view health in general, which is uh, taking care of the sum of you and not just 
some of you. Some, some, right. S-U-M and then S-O-M-E. Correct. Very interesting. True to me. What, where, and who is God to you? I would say the what is some sort of a higher source that is involved in, to me, somewhat mystical ways in the universe. Uh, where? I would say that hopefully God is everywhere. And who? Um, would have to be consumed by my other two answers. Are you spiritual? Do you have any spiritual beliefs? I am spiritual. I believe that there's a, um, I mean, every time I wake up and I can see, I always imagine how amazing that is just to be able to see or to smell or to feel or to hear or to touch. I mean, all of those senses can be very spiritual. Um, I think that um, prayer is a uh, part of spirituality, but people can be spiritual without it. People can identify with a religion or not and be spiritual. Uh, I think that spirituality is a uh, independent variable that can be part of many things but an entity unto itself. Beautiful answer. Uh, we can be spiritual being religious even. Uh, there are so many ways of accessing that, which in my opinion, there's, there's nothing that's not spiritual. Let's talk about your work. And my first question had to be this one. How did you become a writer? Well, writing is a way that you can express yourself with an opportunity to reach uh, countless numbers of individuals because you never know who will come across things that you write. It's also a way to uh, document your thinking or your process of thinking at a particular time. I, I write uh, medical things, I write uh, non-medical things, and I write music. So I have, um, I have a very strong desire to express my feelings or my knowledge in a variety of ways. And depending on what's most appropriate, it comes out in one or the other of those approaches. What is that about music that inspires? To me, it has a lot to do with healing, too. Well, it depends on the music. Um, right, right. <laughs> some, some music uh, <laughs> could be chalk, you know, <laughs> your nails on a chalkboard. But, uh, but um, for music, for instance, I have, uh, I wrote a, a group of CDs that were, uh, for music that were lullabies. And I wrote them because my father-in-law was going through some very challenging cancer treatments and he couldn't sleep. He was quite uncomfortable. 
And he asked if there was anything that I could do to be helpful. And I researched, you know, what makes music feel uh, comforting and helps to induce sleep. And I started uh, understanding that there were certain key structures and there were certain key sequences and there were certain beats per minute. Uh, and all of these things contributed. So I wrote this group of lullabies that uh, were quite sleep inducing and helped him and actually have helped a lot of people. They've been in uh, different medical situations and proton beam uh, therapy treatment centers are in different medical settings. And also I have many children around the country who've listened to these lullabies and their parents write and tell me how helpful they were. Uh, music is um, also a way to use more than one, one tool for learning because if you think about it, the way that you use words can be as rhyme and rhythm and you can use words as uh, sounds. And, and so many people will remember a certain song from when they met their boyfriend or girlfriend and they'll remember uh, what was playing when certain things happened because music is a way to uh, recall. So people recall the actual sound, but they also remember rhythm and rhyme from a different part of their brain. It's a different file cabinet with a different handle. And if you think about religion as a source of music, the most of the religions in the world passed down their, uh, their text before there was writing with songs. They chanted them. And so, um, so there's a lot in, uh, along those lines. And also, um, you can take the type of music that you want to, uh, as part of the messaging, and it creates part of the message, whether it's a light and lively song or one that has a different kind of a, a beat or a different genre of music. And each one of those can convey a different experience or feeling in a way that True. is um, helpful to the messaging. How did you discover that you had musical talents? Well, I was always hearing music going. I mean, I hear music all the time. I spend part of every day writing songs or music compositions. I have tons of books of music I've written. And some of those, you know, not everyone is a home run, but uh, many times it's like if an artist were going to draw a picture, they may have sketches and eventually it becomes a painting. So many times you start out with a sound or a thought or a a kind of a phrase, musical phrase, and then over time that develops, and then maybe a, a day or a week or a month later, it morphs into a song. And so, um, so I just keep sketching it down, just like people have notepads for their thoughts. Um, so, and I keep a pad with me if I have a, a thought that pops in my head as a phrase or a concept, and I try and keep things down because. Um, you got to ink it when you think it, as they say, or you forget it. Mm, right. It's true. 
So I'm wondering uh, who came first, the artist, musician, or the expert who helps women to feel better? Well, probably uh, the music came first because, you know, you start singing and playing. And my father was had a beautiful voice and was always playing music and singing. And so uh, something that was part of my youth that also in some ways a connection to him. He's now long past, but it's it remains a, a way to feel a connection. But but in addition, um, you know, wanting to learn and know and understand has been around for a long time for me as well. So, uh, you know, I it's it's just part of the sum of me and not just some of me, as I said. Mm, I love that. Dr. Shea, I absolutely love that. Yeah, it's true. So why did you choose to become an expert who helps women? Well, I got my first desire to be involved in women's health when I was a medical student. And one of my professors was a, uh, it was an obstetrician and a gynecologist who I just thought was terrific. He was such a nice person. So knowledgeable, very unassuming, and yet um, a source of wisdom. And you could just about ask him anything, and it would be like you turned on a computer, and it would just go. And at the end of it, you would know exactly. And and we became friends over our uh, my career. He's now passed away, but we became friends, and uh, and someone I was in touch with constantly. And when I started my career, I began as a uh, fertility specialist. I did some of the first in vitro fertilizations in the country and developed some of the early ultrasounds, all those when women go in to have their follicles, the little cysts that house the egg measured. I did most of those, many of those early measurements that documented you know, accuracy and size and all those pregnancy tests you go in, uh, the ovulation test when you go in the drugstore and you pee on a stick to see if it, you ovulate or not, many of that early work. I was involved in the timing of ovulation in my early studies and so forth. So um, I've had a long history in that. And, and then um, partway down the road, my wife ended up having surgery that threw her into early menopause right after a study incorrectly reported that estrogen caused breast cancer. That isn't necessarily accurate at all, but that was a, mis a myth understanding. And as a result, uh, she, she had her procedure done just months after that study came out and her doctors were reluctant to treat her with hormones. And so I began to switch from the fertility side to the menopause side because I was trying to figure it out so she wouldn't have to tough it out because right. it really was a challenging time for women right. and still is. Right. Oh, yeah. Before I ask you questions about estrogen, I'll ask you this question first about your book. What was the inspiration and intention of writing your book, The Estrogen Fix? Well, it was the second of two, the estrogen window and the estrogen fix. Uh, the, um, the, the intent was is that there was so much misunderstanding about hormones that, that the fear 
of uh, cancer, I remember the day that the Women's Health Initiative, the study, came out saying that estrogen, as I say, incorrectly caused breast cancer and other things. And I remember that the phones were just ringing off the hook and women were throwing their hormones away and just really became miserable. And, and also many doctors became worried that they would be sued if they gave women estrogen. And so there became a generation of women that weren't able to take uh, hormones because they couldn't get them even if they wanted them and many were afraid to take them. So what I realized is that the original study that demonstrated that estrogen was bad for women was supposed to have women who were uh, well women who were between the ages of 50 and 79 in it. And in fact, there were so many women who were already on estrogen that they couldn't find any women who were not on estrogen. So it turned out that the 75% of the women in the study who took hormones were in between the ages of 60 and 79. And 75% of the women who took the placebo or the sugar pill were between the ages of 50 and 59. So they compared 50-year-olds to 60- and 70-year-olds. And of course, the 70-year-olds had more problems. And also, uh, it was supposed to be just well women. But as I said, it was difficult to get women into the study. So they included women who were smokers, women who had high blood pressure, women who were overweight, women who had diabetes, all of which are risk factors for heart disease, breast cancer, and so forth. And so what ends up happening is you had a study that was skewed negatively. And then a decade later, they took the same study and went back and looked at this. And they realized that if they matched the women that they could, who were between the ages of 50 and 59, if they could take women who were the same age and match them up, for which was, say, for estrogen or not estrogen, then all the problems started to go away because they had basically compared apples and oranges. And so, and, and as I went around the country with my book tour to talk about this, I realized that all across the country, there are all these people who were afraid. The medical community was afraid. The women who are the patients were afraid. And not everybody has to be on hormones, but if they want them, they should understand that it's a safe and reasonable choice for most women. And I love this idea of having choices, right? And being knowledgeable about the choices we have. I think women, should, I just say with that, I think women should be a partner in their healthcare and not just get what somebody tells them. They should right. understand and be able to have a discussion about it. Talk to me about estrogen. What is it? How does it affect us, women, and why do we need it? Well, estrogen is uh, one of the dominant hormones in women, and it's basically the hormone that primarily defines womanhood. Estrogen at puberty is the thing that makes the curves come in women, the breasts develop. 
as it's getting into balance with other hormones in the body, it's also the things that create mood and it also moodiness and it can also uh, create uh, sexual desire. But estrogen is also involved in, uh, in terms of uh, happiness. It, has, it increases serotonin. It in induces sleep. It helps to sleep. It helps in many areas uh, that are gender-specific, but also you know, just general health measures. And so throughout, uh, after puberty... Uh, estrogen and another hormone, progesterone, are in balance. When they're in puberty, they're out of balance. And when they finally get into balance, women have regular menstrual cycles. And then if they do, they, they could get pregnant. And, and then uh, as they get through their reproductive years and start to get towards menopause, the hormones become unbalanced again. And the moodiness happens, mood changes occur, menstrual irregularities occur, uh, body changes occur, uh, libido can have changes. And so there are many things that change as they transition into menopause until finally the levels get back down to prepubertal levels again. And um, then they're in a more steady state. Uh, estrogen affects many cells in the body. The majority of them, it affects the brain, uh, as I said, for mood. But it, not only that, it affects the speed of thought. You know, the brain is a series of nerves connected together. And the way we have a physical action or the way we have a, a, a thought is one nerve transmits to another nerve through a junction. And the speed of that is how how physically uh, in balance we are, and the speed of that may be how emotionally balanced we are. And so, uh, so estrogen affects the brain. It affects the breast in terms of the amount of fat and fiber that's in the breast. It affects the bladder in terms of the uh, sustaining the bladder and keeping it from becoming too sensitive where you have to go to the bathroom too often. Is, it, is, it affects the bones and maintains the thickness of the bones so that we rem, you know that so that the bones remain strong and there's less risk of breaking a hip or a wrist or other bones uh, it affects the skin estrogen is responsible for keeping the collagen under the skin which is like a scaffolding that stretches the skin out and keeps it youthful and firm and as estrogen depletes depletes, then this, the collagen goes away, just like the calcium and collagen goes out of bones, and the skin becomes more wrinkled, and the crow's feet start to happen, and all those things. Uh, estrogen helps in terms of the uh, ability to metabolize sugar, so it helps in the prevention of diabetes. Uh, estrogen has uh, involvement in intimacy and keeps the vaginal tissues moist. Uh, there's a lot of things that hormones do, uh, estrogen in particular, as far as women's health. And so uh, it's, an, it's a very key to femininity and, and uh, women's health. Now, if women can't take estrogen or 
they don't want to, and those things are going on anyway, then there may be alternatives that women can try, but it's not like one thing affects everything like hormone, like estrogen does. You have to get one for your bladder and one for your breast and one for your vagina, one for your brain and one for your, you know, every other organ. You have to take them one at a time and you have to, again, taking care of the sum of you and not mm. just some of you. Mm. Yeah, I love that, the way you put it. There are so many benefits that I didn't know. Talk to me about menopause and pre-menopause. It seems like it's something that I'm going through now. I'm 43, so I can feel some of the effects, I think, not sure. So what are the signs of pre-menopause and then menopause? Okay. Well, first, let me say that menopause is about a transition. It's not about an age. In other words, many women think that, oh, when I'm 50 or I'm 55 or I'm 60 or whatever, I'll go through menopause. Well, that may be true, but for 5 to 10% of women, they will go through menopause before age 45. And 1%, 1 in 100, will go through menopause before they're 40. And the symptoms that lead up to that are called perimenopause, like the perimeter, the area around it. And so perimenopause is the up to 10-year window leading up to a menopause. And many of the symptoms start in perimenopause because that's when the hormones begin to become unpaired and unbalanced. And it's the unbalance of the hormones that leads to many of the symptoms. The symptoms are many, but the good news is most people don't get all of them, but some people get, get each of them. And uh, common ones are that women will have, first of all, a change in their period. They may not go away. They may suddenly get lighter. Uh, they may get a little closer together. They may then get a little further apart. They might have uh, hot flashes where they feel a sense of warmth that comes up from their chest and up to their face. Or in different cultures, they may have uh, hot flashes that are, that are on their backs or on the backs of their legs, depending on the parts of their uh, body that's exposed to the sun and the heat. Different parts of the world, these hot flashes come in different places. The... Uh, they may experience mood swings, which are very common because, as I said, the estrogen is very important to the brain. And when those levels are fluctuating, the mood may be different. There may be brain fog. There may be uh, changes in weight because what happens is estrogen helps to kind of keep the weight in its normal distribution and the lack of it causes it to become more of a centralized and that's where people get they call them muffin tops or their uh, their menopause belly or whatever they choose to call it uh, and uh, they may have palpitations that their heart you know skips a beat periodically they may have changes in their uh, libido they may have dryness in their uh, private tissues and um, there are many symptoms that they could have. Usually one, two, or three things will be the thing that will bother them the most. Their bladder may get more sensitive because estrogen uh, helps to maintain the bladder, uh, the lining of the bladder and the integrity of it. 
So there are a lot of things that could happen, and um, you have to just see which symptoms are most pressing. And then um, it's it's a, an ongoing journey. And when I talk to people, I try to get, you know, first women need answers, and then they're trying to get clarity of what's going on. And then they, they're trying to explore their options and figure out what can they do about it. And then they need to make a plan so that they're able to know what they should be doing. And then they have to start that plan. And then they ultimately have to, you know, they start to feel better when they in, implement things. And then over time, like any uh, navigation of a long trip, you have to adjust sails and to stay in balance. There may be adjustments because things change over time. Your needs may change. So true. And you have a test, the menopausequiz.com, where we can take the test. And I did that. So that was um, interesting questions. And I noticed that some of those signs I already experienced. I'd like to know if carrying this a healthy lifestyle, like exercising, eating healthy, sleeping well, does it help all this? Absolutely. So we don't need to take anything. <laughs> uh, let me just say that uh, it's important to realize that when one goes through this perimenopause to menopause window, that you're not alone. There's 6,000 women a day that do this, that enter this every day in the United States alone. So it's uh, you're not alone. But the to answer your question, uh, are there things you can be doing? Well, I think the main lifestyle things that are important are, first of all, to eat healthy, because after all, food is the fuel for every cell in your body. So eating a, a, a very healthy lifestyle, staying away from too much sugar, staying away from uh, saturated fats, staying away from junk food, uh, those are uh, important things. Uh, the second thing is um, exercise getting adequate exercise and how much that is depends on your physical health and where you are right now. But people should be trying to exercise a little bit every day. If they can get 10,000 steps in a day, that's ideal. Uh, if they can't and they can only walk to the corner, walk to the corner. The next day, walk around the block, you know, or after three or four days, walk around the block, but start somewhere and then improve. Uh, stress reduction. Right now, we live in one of the most stressful times in modern history between all the things going on. And I would say that people have to try to maintain stress levels that are acceptable. And they may have to do that through uh, reframing the way they think. They may have to do it through mindfulness and meditation. They may have to do it. Exercise will help do that. Uh, they have to uh, Try to control stress. I tell people to not watch the news before they go to bed because things that you see last before you go to bed are often the things that you think about. And, uh, and then, so there's nutrition, exercise, stress reduction, and sleep. And sleep becomes a very important part. And I know there are a lot of people right now who are having trouble sleeping because they're so anxious. So those are important things. Of course, avoiding unhealthy things like consuming too much alcohol, 
are taking drugs that are not, you know, uh, street drugs, uh, smoking cigarettes, which I consider a street drug in a way, because you're putting a lot of nicotine into your body, which is causes a lot of problems. Uh, having said that, uh, there will still be people who will benefit from hormone therapy or from other sorts of therapy because uh, people have different uh, needs. So everything has to be individualized for people, although you can make generalizations that will work for many people. But as I say, nothing works for everyone and everything works for someone. So you have to, you have to uh, in, you know, see what your needs are and then identify the things that you can control and the things that you then need medical help with to, to help you have better control. It's common sense that taking care of the um, general health will help with everything. How common is common sense? <laughs> <laughs> not too common, unfortunately. It's, it's not very <laughs> So true. So it's not the absence of, of estrogen, it's being imbalanced. That's what causes all the, the issues, the health issues. Well, the lack of it can cause some. In other words, as estrogen, if you think of uh, things that are transitional, the imbalance of hormones or unbalanced, however you want to say it, those are the thing, those are going to cause the fog, the, the, the brain fog, the mood swings, that's going to cause the irregular periods. If you were trying to get pregnant at the end of your reproductive years and are having difficulty, all of that's going to be these hormonal imbalances. The, if you're talking about the um, vaginal uh, dryness, if you're talking about bone thickness, if you're talking about uh, the, the quality of the skin, if you're talking about a number of other issues, estrogen, yes, no, it's going to be estrogen levels are going to be the ones that determine that because they are the ones that are helpful in maintaining those tissues. In your book, you mentioned timing. It's all about timing. So what is about timing? It's the age. Talk to me about that, the timing. When do we start with what you call estrogen-containing medications? Well, in the estrogen window, I explained that the, it, that the thing that makes estrogen go from something that's less safe to something that is more safe is beginning it near the time of menopause. In other words, the women who were in their 50s had virtually no problems, whereas the women who were in their 60s and 70s, when they began it, they had problems. On the other hand, as I mentioned earlier, there are women who begin menopause in their 40s or uh, before 45 or before age 40. Those women should begin hormones at the time they go through menopause if they decide estrogen is right for them. They should begin it then because women who go into earlier menopause, like before age 45 or definitely before age 48 possibly, who don't take any hormones until at least the time of natural menopause because the mean age of menopause is 51. So the women who go through menopause earlier, those women need to have a very special need because if they don't, they're at increased risk for issues of uh, 
mental health issues, uh, increased risk of Parkinson's disease, increased risk of heart disease, increased risk of uh, heart attack and many other uh, conditions if they don't take estrogen until the age of natural menopause, which would be about age 51, the mean age of menopause. That seems to get rid of all those problems. But if they they don't, then they do have potentially an increased risk, and they have to be monitored a lot closer for those concerns. So the ones, the women who go through earlier, those are the women at particular risk. And that, you know that brings up there's a whole group of women now who, because of genetic reasons, are going into menopause at 35 or 40. You know these women that have the BRCA genes or other genes that they take out in order to prevent certain cancers. And those women, because they're having their ovaries out to lower the risk of cancer, are told by some people that they shouldn't take estrogen. So they're, they're not somebody who gradually goes into menopause. They're basically having their ovaries removed at peak reproduction time and suddenly thrown into menopause, which makes it a much more challenging thing when you have surgical menopause. In other words, your hormones are fine, but you have a medical reason to remove the ovaries and suddenly, bam, your hormones go from perfectly timed and tuned up down to zero. And it's very challenging. The reality is, is that recent data shows that if women take hormone therapy, and they have, for instance, the BRCA or breast cancer gene, which increases the risk not only of breast cancer, but also ovarian cancer and even other cancers like pancreatic cancer. Uh, but if they take estrogen, it does not increase their risk of having those cancers any more than the risk they would have had in the first place. In other words, it doesn't add to their risk of cancer. And they need to have that talk with their oncologist. It can become complicated in a way. So I'm wondering if we could simplify. I know you have the quiz. Yeah, menopausequiz.com. And that'll tell women where they are, where their symptoms are. And it'll help them understand kind of where they are in the process. Okay, that sounds really wonderful. And the way to know if we need to take hormones, do we make that decision or should we trust a doctor like yourself and to go through the process and make the decision for us? I think that every person should have the right to decide for themselves. Now, there are going to be some for which it's a very reasonable choice, and that's for the majority of women. And there are going to be some where there's a risk-benefit where they have to make a decision as to if that actually makes sense for them or not. In other words, uh, there are some women who will have a, a higher risk because of their own medical histories. And so uh, it has to be, I think, a shared decision because you can't write your own prescription for estrogen. but Ultimately, you should have make every effort to get, you know, read like the estrogen fix, and you'll find out how to have a conversation with your doctor so that you know what you should be uh, talking about in order to. You should, you'll know what you should be uh, talking about in order to um, make the right decision for you based on on health and uh, risk factors. I love that you give us the opportunity to have more specific knowledge on the topic. 
So we make a um, knowledgeable and the right decision based on understanding. That's really wonderful. I thank you for your work you do, Dr. Meish. Well, thank you. I have a few more questions, final questions, just a few of them. Before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage from your book? Well, because of time and everything, I, I, I don't have a particular passage to read. I would only say that uh, you want to f identify uh, when you are looking for a women's health doctor, you want to find someone who will spend the time to explain your options so that you understand them and that you get the information you need to make the best choice for yourself. And there is no right or wrong choice. There's just a right or wrong choice for you. There is no uh, even right or wrong choice for you sometimes. There's the best choice for you and a less wise choice. But everything is a risk and a benefit. Everything is a risk or a benefit. And as a result, uh, you have to become knowledgeable enough to understand that. Yeah, yeah. Beautifully said. So my final questions to you, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? The hardest lesson? Um, I think the hardest lesson is that sometimes we have to try and do the best we can with one area so that we can balance our life and enjoy all of our life and fulfill all of our roles. Sometimes you can't be everything to everyone at the same time, but you have to try to be uh, the best you can be at each of our roles in life. And we all wear many hats uh, and we have to, uh, we have to understand when we have to let go of one thing to, uh, to fulfill another. It's kind of like when you, when you are on the monkey bars, sometimes you have to let go of one thing to reach the next bar. You have to, you, you can't reach it if you don't let go of something. So uh, that's what you have to, that's my, uh, my lesson. It goes back to the word that you used earlier, acceptance. If you knew we would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? Well, the first thing I would do is get a second opinion. <laughs> Good, yeah. <laughs> As a doctor, of course, he would do that. <laughs> uh, I don't think anybody uh, would say that uh, they want it written on their tombstone that they uh, they worked the last day of their life up to the last minute. So um, I would. I think it's always a good idea to find the things that matter to you most and to let go of the things that are really not that important. It's kind of the 80-20 rule, you know, 20% of what you do weighs you down. And even though you might think you can't give it up, it's just let go of it and focus on the things that bring you joy uh, and also uh, the things that you must do. I, mean, I try like in every day to figure out three things I'm trying to get done because I know I won't get down my list any further than three. And uh, I don't even, even pretend anymore. So I just say, what do I have to get done today? And that's it. And uh, tomorrow it will be another day, hopefully. Yeah. A wonderful answer. Thank you for that.
answer. I love your wisdom. One more question. What are three things about life that you know for sure as of now? Well, I'm here talking to you. <laughs> um, I know that the quality of my life will have as much to do with how I perceive the world and how I interpret it as it is with what's going on in reality around me. So my, my option in life is how I react to things, not what happens to me. Mm. So um, I'm pretty sure about that. And um, the next thing I think is that I would uh, try to think what it is I'm looking forward to, because it's always nice to have something on the horizon that can be positive and pleasurable and that you can get joy from. So I, I think, and I think the third is um, if, if you don't um, balance your life between uh, all the parts of it that you will be out of balance and it will lead to unhappiness. So I think the trick is to uh, figure out how to put the pieces together and the ones that don't fit, you have to leave on the side of the road. So you have room for, <laughs> to make, you know, to, to make joy with what you get, well, what you have. Don't mess up what you got for what you can't have. Mm, right, right. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your presence, your knowledge, and your purpose. That is part of the purpose of your life is to help women to feel better. Being a woman, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me to participate. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Uh, if you visit drmache.com, D-R-M-A-C-H-E.com, that's my website. And uh, there's generally information there. And um, I would just say go go to drmache.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Dr. Mesh, and we'll talk soon. All right. All the best to you. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Mesh Seibel, please visit his website, menopausecoaching.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Thank you.